welcome to a new episode of the Life Science Get Together podcast. Uh, today, I have the honor and pleasure to talk with uh, a well-known business angel, investor, and serial entrepreneur from Denmark, uh, Nikolai Nielsen. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nikolai, how did you become a business angel and a serial entrepreneur since 1999? What has driven you? I think, I think in many ways, it's a classic uh, journey I've been on, uh, where I took my master's degree in the 90s. And at that point in time, you were sort of at business schools, you were sort of brainwashed to believe you should be a, a CEO in a big company, right? Mm -hmm. So I basically spent the first five, six um, years in large organizations where I gradually realized what I've sort of always known that I want to create my own companies because I created my own companies since I was, when I was a student, even before, uh, sold illegal computer games and stuff like that. Um, but you sort of come into this mode where you think that you need more savings, you need more experience, and mm -hmm. then in 10 years, I want to be an entrepreneur. But then when you realize that after the honeymoon days in a new company, that it's not really what you want. Um, Then I sort of realized when I was around 30 that I have to do it full time. So I basically quit my job um, in a pharma company in 2007. Um, and I, I didn't really, yeah, I spent all my money basically on my MBA. So what I did was to start doing consulting. Um, mm -hmm. And since I worked in the pharma industry before, I basically did consulting there, not, not with the goal of creating a consulting company, but with the goal of, finding out what I want to do. Um, and you can say that was sort of my life the first two or three years. And then gradually via my network, I was involved in some startups where I could use some of my consulting money to, to invest a little bit. Um, and then I become co-founder of serial companies. Uh, and that I did, you can say, from 2008 to 2015, where my main job was to become co-founder of startups, where I was paid a little bit of money, but majority in equity. Um, and then I was so lucky in 2015 that my first investment um, was sold um, to Intel and I got some, some money out. And, and then I decided, well, what, what is it really what I want to do? I already mm -hmm. knew I didn't want to work in a big company, but should I become an operational CEO or should I become an investor? And I, I, I went for investor because I think that's what I like the most and where I can do my most uh, for the company. So you can say different stages, 2000 to 2006, seven thought I should be a CEO, 2007 to 15 sort of creating my own companies and we're lucky there. And then the last five years, full time, you can say business. Engine. That's yeah. it. It reminds me of my own life. I started in the nineties in Austria and this were the, those crazy days when the internet was young and I completely can agree to the picture you painted that you say I mean at the university what was I trained into it was uh, find a job in a big company work up the career ladder and uh, be happy with that but uh, it has a little bit changed in luckily in the last 20 years so the ecosystem has evolved and more and more people um, I'm moving towards the entrepreneurship space. Um, I had last year the opportunity to speak um, at conferences in the United States with US-based investors. And they always point a little bit out, uh, 
Europe, yeah, it's an interesting space. It's nice technology, but the ecosystem isn't really there. How did you experience in the last this, years the ecosystem? Um, I think this, this sun is shining, <laughs> talking <laughs> about working from home. Um, yeah, how has it changed? I think if you go back 20 years, there was basically no ecosystem in Europe, like basically nothing, right? Of course, there was startups, but there was no... VCs, there was only a handful of VCs. They were typically relatively inexperienced. They were typically sort of ex-bankers. Um, and everything happened in Silicon Valley, you can say, right? It was really the center of the universe there, at least in, in and there was no one in Europe. And I think what have happened over the last 20 years is a lot where you have real ecosystems in, in Europe. Uh, I think it really started, for instance, in London, where you can also see the amount of venture capital going in there, you know, has been really, really big and, and, and a real real ecosystem, but also spreading out. You can say a lot of things are happening in, in France. A lot of things have hap are happening in Scandinavia, also especially Sweden. And it's typically been driven by, at least how I see it, right, by some successful entrepreneurs and VCs who get more confidence, got more money, and, and therefore putting money into new startups. And, and you have... Uh, entrepreneurs who are not first-time entrepreneurs, but who have done it before. And we all know the difference between starting your first company and starting the second <laughs> company. There's just so massive difference. So yeah. what I've seen is now that over the last 10 years, especially, you really have um, strong um, local ecosystem. Of course, each of them in Europe are much, much smaller than, than US, right? Mm -hmm. they, are, they, are, they are smaller, right? But still, in 10 years ago, if you want to to go on the classic VC route, and I'm not sure you should do it, but let's assume you want to go on the classic VC route. There was basically one way to go, and that was to to do what's called Israeli, right? Where you basically switch your company to an, an, a Delaware company and go to US, you move to US, and you raise a big round over there. And that is not needed anymore, at least not from a money perspective, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you can say... What have happened? A lot of things have happened on both the investor side and the founding side. Um, you have really ecosystem. So, what is still lacking? I still want the issue we're still having is that Europe is still 25 different markets. So, what we're lacking is a big home market, and that is a big problem for any startup, right? Mm -hmm. So, if you if you're US and you are, have been successful in Florida, I'm just saying one thing. How hard is it to 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 scale to uh, Carolina and Texas? Not that hard, right? You you know you same can language. use you mm. can use your same people, the same language, the same reference custom, whatever. Assume you are successful in Austria. How hard is it to scale from Austria to Denmark? Actually, mm. relatively hard. You know, absolutely. You know, it's just like so. To wrap up, what do we have? We have now serial entrepreneurs who've done it before. We have investors that have done it before. We have multiple of them. Um, and but so we have a lot going for us, I think. Um, the fact that we are not one market, and there are many good reasons for that, and maybe we should not be one market, but it's from a scaling perspective, it is just harder to make a massive big company in <clears throat> Europe. That That I agree with. That. I mean, going back to the 90s, I did my first attempt towards entrepreneurship in the 90s uh, while I was studying. It was an uh, internet company. It was sort of uh, 
I would say predecessor of Facebook, something in the uh, single space connecting people, social media space. And uh, in those days, the internet was young. So I only knew the Styrian, the Austrian ecosystem. And when I asked the question, I mean, uh, would you give us money to invest in a company that's doing something on the internet? The answer was, I need a website. Why should I give you money for something else so you can build a website? But that's that. And it has really evolved since uh, evolved since then. What I got from from your uh, Vita, you you made uh, your career mostly in the internet technology sector. Is that right in the startup scene? I think yeah. Long story short, I, mm -hmm. I sort of I came from you can say deep tech. I work in pharma um, yeah. and biotech before. Um. And of course, you can say, why well, didn't I become a serial investor uh, in, in that space? And that is, is simply a hard space to be to be as an as as a as a private investor because yeah. the money is just need to pay, right? That means that if you're a business angel and you work in the next pharma project, whatever, you know how far can you get from your hundred thousand euro? Not that far, meaning that in the next round when they need five million euro you know, you'll be diluted because you can't co-invest, right? You know, um, and and the length is very long, right? So so when would you get an exit there? Mm -hmm. So the reason why I came mainly and focusing on my main thing, you can say, is B2B software. Mm -hmm. And that's because it's something I understand and it's scalable, right? So I also do other stuff. I'm also involved in... Do I have... Uh, yeah, I'm involved in... Uh, yeah, I actually took one here. I'm also involved in... This I'm the co-founder of this, a sperm quality test kit, right? So that <laughs> is right. a home test device. For don't yeah. worry, it's not used. It's a home test <laughs> for 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 sperm quality, right? And um, mm -hmm. this has in many ways more purpose. But what is the issue becoming a business in that area? That is that physical things, value chain, distribution, logistics, whatever, is just harder to scale. Mm -hmm. um, we can talk about pros and cons that. So, but one of the reasons why I focus a lot on on software initially is it's as a private investor, it's simply the easiest thing I think where your hundred thousand euro would make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, where anything like I'm involved in. A, uh, oh, one second. Sure. Boom, 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 boom. It's not even here. I mean, also also involves some crazy other hardware things. <laughs> which I can't really find a thinking hat, um, consumer electronics, right? Yeah. Uh, could you imagine doing stuff like this as a startup? Oh my God. Right. You, you know, so long story short, um, I did that. And, but my, I always have a heart also for, uh, for, for stuff that in many cases do more money. Right. So when these, uh, entrepreneurs came to me, it's actually 10 years ago, mm -hmm. 11 years ago, <laughs> and said, we have an idea for this, um, I became the co-founder with a little bit of money, but also the majority was work. And and if you know uh, couples have a hard time getting pregnant, you know, to be able to go to, to say to a man, go down to a clinic and get tested, it's not really sexy, right? So I thought, hey, could we do something like this? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm also involved in in in, in non IT projects mm -hmm. like this. I'm also a board member and investor in a, in a immune oncology uh, mm -hmm. startup, aka <laughs> cancer vaccine. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, also have a monetary perspective. Of course, it can be financially interesting. Of course, it will. But there's also many, uh, you know, an all internal agenda when we 
said what we want to do. We want to cure cancer. We want that the CTO got the Nobel Prize. And then we want to make money, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, it's. Uh, I think that's one of the benefits by working with life science is that it's, if you know anyone in, in, um, in, 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 in among your friends and acquaintances who got cancer, right, it, would there be anything more rewarding in life than would be taking part in launching a project that could cure cancer, right? Absolutely so, agree. So long story short, came from biotech, moved mostly into IT, uh, but also involved in some life science projects. Yeah. Um, I did my first life science project back in 2006 and I quickly realized what you said. It was a spin out from Novartis. So I was lucky to get hired basically by the company. And um, it was Series A round was 40 million euros. So when I look at the European ecosystem and at the business angels, uh, I think there are only a very, very few private people who can invest 40 million euros out of their own pockets yeah. into a company. And still, I mean, life science is always a very risky space. So yeah. especially in the early stages, the success probability of a single product is almost 0%. So there are very, very few people who are going into that space. That's why I always recommend when somebody wants to invest, uh, become a founder and go on the executive board if you have expertise that's necessary to do so. Um, because then you can at least basically pre-finance your own expenses, your own salary and make some money with the Series A, Series B, Series C if you know the investors. Mm. But now you are involved also in an immuno-oncology immune space. How do we, would you define the difference between a life science company and an IT company? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. I think, I think the easiest way to explain it is to say, what is the risk? Mm -hmm. So the risk in an IT company is mainly on the market size, on market, right? Because you can always do it, right? If someone comes to me and said, Nicola, we want to build this B2B software, I have no doubt that in 99% of all cases, it can be done. It might be delayed, it might be more costly to develop, but, but, but you can build it. So what is the risk? The risk is, is there a market for this? You know, will people or businesses pay for that? Is it really better than... Uh, the alternatives, is it something, yeah, all this, all the market, go-to-market, uh, pricing, uh, competition, all that. It's typically, if you take at least pharma, I'm not saying, so you can say medical device is a little bit in between, but if you take pure pharma, like the immune oncology space, I mean, you know, there's no market risk, you can say. If we know we can develop this product that can improve uh, uh, life with a few years for this group, We, we sort of know already what the price would be, right? Because we, we know that, hey, we um, governments are willing to pay that much for a year. Therefore, you can charge that much and there are that many patients. And of course, there's always a risk that a new competitor come up 
But actually, that risk is not that big because you know the the funnel of all the big biotech companies where they are. So you say, well, in eight years when we're on the market, you know, here are the five most likely competitors. In other words, the market risk is not really there. What is the risk? Of course, the technical risk. You know, if you have something that has cured cancer and mice, what is the chance that that will come on the market? Less than 1%, right? So, So it's about technical risk. And then about the money needed to come to a point where you're de-risking the project. You can say if you take IT, the typically amount you need to come to what's called product market fit, where you sort of shown you have business, for most will be a few million euro. And actually, in the beginning, it's less. So you spend 100,000 euro <laughs> to build a prototype and get the pilot customers on. Then you get 1 million euro more. To, to do a seed round where you get more and maybe one million more to do something else. And of course, after that, you can still scale if you want, if you want to be the global leader. Mm-hmm. But the money to, to de-risk a product is from 100,000 euro to a few million euro. Mm-hmm. The money to de-risk a biotech project, you can say if you, if you assume that is up to phase two data, will typically be 50 million euro, you know. 10, 15 million euro up cheap. to phase one, yeah. and then a phase two that is 20 or 30 million, 50 million euro. Yeah. Per, so per, per project, per project. Per project, right? Of course, yeah. you're not putting it in initially, but you can say if you said from preclinical to phase one, mm-hmm. that is typically the 10 million euro ish yeah. for phase one, including all that. And if you need a portfolio approach to that, so you need to invest in 20. Then you can say if you should be a business angel there, you should have the 20 times the 10, that's 200 million euro, plus uh, dry powder to co-invest. So that could be 200 million more. So mm-hmm. you co-invest in the two or three that really takes off. So mm-hmm. I would say if you had 500 million euro, then, then I think you can make massive returns in this space. But I just take my wallet. I don't have 500 million euros. So I think that's the biggest difference. Yeah. So there's nothing in the world I would like more than, let's assume 10 years, I made a shitload of money. What would I, I spend these 200, 400 million euro on? Would it be IT projects? Of course, some. But mm-hmm. I would invest in 20 stuff like that. I think I would invest in something with cancer. I think I would invest a lot about um, CNS neurodiseases. I think that's big. uh, Lifetime extension in general, something like that. You know, I think there's so much purpose. You could also, I just feel myself, you know, when I talk about this, it it has so much purpose. Yeah. I mean, when I look at the stock market, I see that the, what you say in IT companies, it's relatively uh, well-planned. So of course there is a market risk. Uh, but usually the returns are more predictable than when I look, for example, SARS-CoV-2 right now, I mean, vaccine development, uh, Moderna in this space or uh, German companies, it's more or less binary. Either it works or it doesn't work. So either the vaccine works on the market uh, in patients or it doesn't work. Yeah. And in what, what you say, I mean, the 50 million euros up to phase two is right. But when I think a little bit further, I mean, when you're lucky, pharma picks it up. But um, every time when I start planning a biotech company, 
I go with, in my opinion, the worst case assumption. So let's just assume that we don't get a pharma company who picks up the data. So we also have to finance a phase three company and then we have to finance the market entry. Um, I always went with the ballpark figure of 1 billion euros, uh, to say, which is needed to bring any, um, any therapeutics to the space, uh, to the market. But recently in March, it was um, updated by some scientists to say, meanwhile, it's $2 billion. billion. Mm. But of so, course, you can say if you have phase one data is typically risky in the world mm. that there's so many out there. So you have to be lucky in the way that it has to fit exactly what the farmers yes. do for whatever. But I think if you come with significant, really good phase 2B data and you can't get them funded or licensed out by a farmer, mm. I think there's something wrong. You know, it's it, it has to be that the data is not as good as you think they are. Mm -hmm. Of course, you then have a strategic option to say, should I see if I can typically IPO this to yeah. get the funding? Or should I raise private equity money to get it? Or should I license them up? But I think with good phase two data, you always have the option because pharma is also lacking this next thing. And the good thing about phase two data is that that pharma has no problem spending uh, 200 million uh, euro on a phase three. They have plenty mm. of cash, but what they don't like is to invest in 100 different projects because they simply can't get them integrated. Yeah. But you can say a phase two with, 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 with good phase two B data, then you basically have a 50 to 50 shot of being on the market, more or less in most indications. So you can say that is something that pharma like, you know, mm. and, and to take that. Um, and then you have the option at that point in time to say, okay, but would I prefer to IPO instead? I can be in control. Do I prefer to take private equity so I have a more upside if you know I have to live with the risk? Honestly, I don't think that is a situation that is the worst. I think the the transition from preclinical to clinical, where someone has to test this in humans, mm -hmm. and you have to convince typically VCs to test this in humans. Um, I, th I think that's yeah, that's also the situation we're in right mm -hmm. now, where we have magnificent uh, pre-clinical data, like really, 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 really good. And I've spent the last ten years saying no to immune oncology projects because I didn't think they're good enough. Um, and even when the, the one I'm in right now, where we have amazing data, um, that potential there is a potential Nobel Prize in that, right? Uh, but it's still damn hard to to raise uh, the VC round. I'm curious, what what what's what is this company? Can you? Um... So now we get the layman, right? I'm not a scientist. So long story short, <laughs> um, two and a half years ago, I met mm. a, a scientist at Copenhagen University called Peter Holst, uh, and Peter Holst is a former HIV researcher. Mm -hmm. It's actually fun family uh, background because his dad is maybe the most. Uh, um, um, Uh, rewarded scientist in Denmark, he invented the GLP-1 molecule that is mm -hmm. now the, the cornerstone of diabetes treatment. So if you ask, if you look into Novo Nordisk and see what they're making the money on, they're basically making money on products based upon this molecule. And now his son, who's also a genius, um, he became also a scientist and he didn't want to go into the same space as his dad because, you know, that's really hard, right? So he said, what is the hardest thing for me to solve And that was in the 90s, you can say HIV. Mm -hmm. So Peter started as an HIV uh, researcher and actually have an interesting project there where we have some news coming out soon. We can't cool. close them now. Um, 
And then uh, ten, eight years ago, he actually met a German guy, a German scientist. And that German scientist said one thing to Peter, and that was, dear Peter, do you know that there are HIV similar um, parts in our genome? So if if we analyzed your genome or my genome, we will find out that approximately 8% of our genome is not human. That is past infections of HIV, similar type of retroviruses we were infected with when we were monkeys. So long story short, monkeys were infected by HIV, uh, similar uh, mm-hmm. uh, viruses. Fast forward 100,000 years, a few hundred thousand years, we have these parts in our genome. Um, and they are not causing damage normally. But um, cancer use these uh, these uh, sequences to grow. So already 30 years ago, scientists found out that if you block those, um, it's really, really hard for cancer to grow. Mm-hmm. Long story short. Peter had a platform for HIV treatment. He then basically tailored this platform to these genes we have in, or these virus part we have on our genes, and find out that he, he could basically cure cancer in uh, in animals. Not only cure cancer, but get these animals to be immune to new types of cancer. So, for instance, if we take a mouse and we give it breast cancer, we then cure it for breast cancer with our vaccine, and then three months later, we try to give the same mice uh, colon cancer. Mm-hmm. The, my, the mouse is immune to colon cancer. Okay, really? That's what we're trying to do. So yeah. we right now, uh, we have been funded by the Nordisk Foundation and some others. And uh, you can say we're in that step where we're trying to get the X million euro to test it in humans. So you uh, got no, so got Nobel Nordisk already as a partner on board? Not a partner, it's a foundation. The Novo Nordisk okay. company is owned by a foundation yeah. like the Glaxo, uh, Glaxo Smith Klein Foundation. And, and the Novo Nordisk Foundation has invested in us. But that's that's great news because it's very helpful, very supportive to have the right partners on board early on. Yeah, it's coming back to what are investors looking at. They're looking for credibility. Yeah. One way to get credibility is what have you done in the past? In the IT space, I will ask you, so how many software customers do you have? You can't really do that when you are a biotech company. So I ask about the amazing data you have. I would ask you which uh, famous professors would support you. And I would ask you about who, which uh, credible investors have already put money into you. Mm-hmm. So. With that strategic partner, you def- definitely have that. Let's yeah. let's stay a little bit at the the ecosystem part uh, with your company. You started. Did you start the company where you're a co-founder at the beginning? Sorry, I'm not a co-founder of this biotech company. Okay, so you came came in a little bit later. Um, when I think to the Austrian ecosystem, I mean, what you said at the beginning of our talk, um, Europe are 25 different territories. So I would completely agree with that. I mean, there, there is no united Europe. Oh, we have different cultures. We have different languages. And especially when I look at founding a company, the risk is very high. So there are almost no VCs in that space. Uh, the companies very often rely on public funding. But when I look on the public funding side, uh, there are always funny discussions because, of course, local governments invest money into companies to grow the economy locally. But in our space, in the life science space, 
the, let's say the, when we talk about team building, about credibility, uh, finding the right people on the team, uh, most likely they are not in small countries. So we need to build an international team. How supportive is the, the system in Denmark when it comes to international questions and public funding? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. That's a broad question you could say. I think in general, we have, and I think it's actually easier, the, the, the higher up north you get in Europe, I think in general, there's more public support. Mm -hmm. Not only for startups, but also in general, you can say, you know, that's a welfare system with the pros and cons of that, right? Mm -hmm. So for sure, there is more public support programs in general in Northern Europe. Uh, and I think we have, uh, I think we have great support up here. Um, but it's not that different from, from other countries. You can say in Denmark, we have a VEX fund and the Danish growth fund. Mm -hmm. In Germany, they have the HCGF, the High Tech Greener Fund. In Norway, they have Innovation Norway. You can say they are sort of pretty similar. They all try to solve this value of death, right? That mm -hmm. is yeah. in public funding, uh, in, with, with funding where uh, you, you quickly need a lot of cash, but you haven't proven yourself. So it's, I think, what economists would call the and net uh, externality here, right? So for me as a private investor, it doesn't make sense to invest because the risk is so high and I don't get all the benefits, but society get all the benefits because if I invest in you as a scientist, even if our company fails, we still have generated some new knowledge so you go out and create a new company and generate knowledge. That's I think that's our overall thesis. Um, I think we have massive support here in, in, in Scandinavia um, And of course, that really is helpful in the first stage, right? Right, where you need the one, two, three million euro. Uh, I think the issue is that when you need the the ten million euro, then you typically need uh, private funding, right? Mm -hmm. Of mm -hmm. course, what we are having now, and that's quite interesting, is the EU with the SME instrument, um, um, app, you know, application that, that is now called I Accelerator where mm -hmm. they are both now, in, in the past, they only could give 2.5 million euro in grant. And they are, they are now moving into also basically the, the, the VC space, you can say. It's, it's still brand new. I think that would be interesting. Uh, I think the main issue here is that, uh, not issue is that, as you said, there are a limited number of VCs in each country. And for a VC fund that is maybe 100 million euro, they shouldn't put in 15 million euro in, in one because they need to, to have a portfolio approach. Yep. So that would mean even for a, a, a modest round like ours, 15 million euro, we will be looking for three different funds. And that would then mean that we will need ideally one local fund who can say, hey, these guys are smart and they're local. And then we need to syndicate with two funds in typically in Europe because it's still local in that way. 
Um, and that's just making it even harder, right? Because you're not trying to convince only one investor. Yeah. It's three. And two of them are maybe located in France and Spain. And now with Corona, we cannot even visit them. So how do I convince a fund in country X to give us 5 million euro when, of course, we can meet, but it's not that easy, right? Um, so there is local support. I think the EU has moved in. It's really interesting to see um, how how they would navigate in this space. Uh, I think we'll see, especially in the life science, that the governments will move more and more in to do this because it's simply the checks are so big that it's it's really it's 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 really really hard for uh, for um, private people to invest. Yeah, that's true. Especially, I mean, all over all over Europe, we have very high tax rates, so uh, there is not much money left on on the private side. Let's walk through the value chain a little bit and look at the pros and cons of the European system. I think when we look at the, at the technology, uh, thanks to the Horizon programs of the European Union, uh, we have an abundance of technology. When I look on the financing side, uh, while you were talking, I was a little bit smiling because it reminds me of a speech I had with an uh, IT investor years ago where I complained that there is almost no money on the European market for life science projects. He said, that's not true. We have enough money. Maybe the projects are not good enough. But I think the reality still is... Uh, there is an, it, it became better. There are more funds uh, right now. So once a company reached uh, the preclinical space, we can select from funds, but there are not a lot out there. When you look at Austria, still there is, um, let's say, no local, no local VC fund with, uh, um, let's say, a bigger, bigger capability of investing money like several hundred million euros. Um, that brings us to the point that we need to build syndicates all over Europe. And uh, what's your feeling? Do we have sufficient funds already in Europe so that it's absolutely no problem? Or is there still some room for improvement? I, I can give you the real figures, right? You, because we mapped it. So we we, we we done it the last year, right? Yeah. So if you take an early stage pharma project like us that is raising an A round, right? So raising, let's say, 10 million euros globally, Funds that would invest in an early stage uh, European pharma startup uh, doing this is around 120, <laughs> and uh, we're sort of talking with all of them. So it's so around between 120. And many of them Num in number, real num number funds. Number so funds, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Number funds. Many of them in real life are not interested in doing something in Europe unless it's very specific cases, unless <laughs> it's if you get an American VC fund to invest in your Series A in, in, in Europe, it's typically because they know you already, um, your work with them in the past, something like that. So let's cut them away. So what, what do we have in Europe for this? We will have like 30, 40 funds in Europe doing this. Um, maybe 30, 40, 50. Let's say we're really, really optimistic now. We say there is actually... 50 funds. Some of them are actually quite small, but that's 50 funds. That is the total sum of potential investors. And you need to convince three or four of them. So you need to you need to have a hit rate of 10% of all available funds mm -hmm. to succeed with your syndicate. If you talk about any other sales process, if I said to you, Christian, go out and you, you're focusing on this segment, 
let's talk when you have 10% of your custom, potential customers on board, you will say, is that going to happen? 10% early days. So I think, and then, then you have the, the, the 40 funds, you can say, mm. and you need 10 of them. Some of them might say, hey, we are not investing in your space right now. We are not doing immune oncology. We are only focusing on gut health or we are only focusing on CNS. Or we mm. are That's we true. actually prefer medical device instead of whatever. Mm. Okay, then you have 20 left. Uh, so we have 20 funds who really want to do early stage immune oncology, 25. Okay, some of them might have invested in other products already. So they said, hey, Nikolai, we have 20 spots in a portfolio. We already have two immune oncology there, so we're overrepresented. So despite we like your data, um, it's we, we can't take three or four immune oncology into 20 because we need to diversify. Okay. So now we go from 25 to 10 to 15. Mm. So we have 15 funds and you need three or four of those. Um, and you ideally need a local one because if you don't get the local one, for you, that will then be Germany or Switzerland. Which is tricky in Austria. <laughs> yeah, so so you have to go out there and you have to convince one German one because the yeah. German one is perceived by the Danish one to be local. <laughs> so it's just a numbers game that is uh it's uh yeah. yeah and then 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 of course of the 40 funds now it's going to really one are they in the investment period or not because they actually only invest in the first three or four years and then mm -hmm. they harvest after that, you can say and especially the early product you have they will only invest in you in the first one or two years because they need mm -hmm. enough time to sell before so it in it, it, it real life we it's yeah, Tricky. if this, you know, <laughs> offline, Christian, I can show you the list of all the funds we've been talking to. And that's basically mm -hmm. the the list, right? That is the list of yep. funds. It's not like, yeah, of course, then we can be lucky then. In Denmark, we have one of the, the veterans in this space, uh, Christian Christoph, who basically just uh, launched a new fund uh, a month ago, which mm -hmm. is great because actually that has one fund has a significant impact. Mm -hmm. So is there enough funds? And no. What is solution? I really don't know. Uh, because when governments play VC funds, is that the right solution? Neither, not always, right? Um, but I think there is a massive need. Uh, uh, yeah. I see, the, I see the same need on the market and the same opportunity. I don't know if the figures are still right in 2020. I did a little bit of research in 2019. Um, and I've put together some some published reports from basically Ernst Young, KPMG, Deloitte, um, and just got ballpark figures. So I didn't dig into it very deeply, but from what I got, top level is that every year about $20 billion um, dollars are invested in life science in the United States. So similar number in China, and we have uh, three to five in Europe. So that go into the life science space. Um, and one friend from China uh, laughed and said, yeah, and half of it happens in the United Kingdom. So for continental Europe, it's let's say one, two, three billion maximum per year. Um, but we have a lot of technology thanks to the Horizon funds. So I completely can agree to what you say that it's very tricky to raise money in Europe only. 
Um, and you earlier mentioned that a solution might be an IPO with a company and there are several options. But do you really see that happen in Europe? That there uh, is a space for it's IPO? It's very country specific. You can say, <laughs> and you take two countries that from the outside can look very similar, like Denmark and Sweden. And from an IPO's perspective, at least in the life science, uh, they're not. So if you take Denmark, actually you can IPO in a tech company because this is a tech company which mm -hmm. I co-founded and we IPO that in June. That you can do. Um, but but the, 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 the public capital market in Denmark for small companies is still very limited. But mm -hmm. if, for instance, in Sweden, they have a, a local stock exchange for small companies and, and that has a... Um, a large number of biotech companies actually mm -hmm. so if you're going to raise the, the not maybe not the 15 million but the 5 million euro um, uh, funding for a small phase one or whatever that is actually po possible to do in, in Sweden so we have a number of Danish mm -hmm. biotech companies that have semi relocated to Sweden at mm -hmm. least put some of their office down there and then are raising on the Swedish stock exchange Um But it's very country-specific. Um, I think also in UK, they have this AM stock exchange that is also for small um, small companies. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many biotech companies that are there. Uh, but no, it's not the normal route. Um, yeah. Let, let's spend a little bit my IPO picture that I have in mind. So uh, when I look... Over the lifetime of a life science company, I think the what is also initially in Austria, one to three million mostly comes from public funds. Uh, we have a very generous public funding scene. Thank God and thank the government. Um, afterwards, we need the Series A. So it's what you say, 10, 10 15, 20 million euros, uh, which can be done in Europe. Um, but I always wanted to avoid any any going public discussion because I think it's just complicated. So when I have a company with a Series A, I can raise it, raise it privately and I spare myself a lot of pain on the stock market because I have different reporting rules. Um, when I go further down the road, Series P, I mean, you mentioned that we need 50 million euros per project uh, to come to a point where we can sell it to Big Pharma. Um, Ideally, we, when, when I would like to IPO a company, ideally the company has a pipeline. So with, let's say, a front runner, which is partnered already with Pharma, then we have a second program, which is very well in the clinics, uh, some preclinical projects and a discovery pipeline. So this would be my ideal world. Yeah. But when, when, when I take what you say and I sum it up in my mind, I come to an IPO um, like Keeper Pharma from Austria did uh, 100, 200, 300 million euros. Uh, do you really see that coming in Europe so that we have enough potential here on the market? I think you should ask yourself on, well, this is really, um, well, these assets are really suited for it, right? Because the risk is still so high and it's often binary. Um, and one of the issues going public also with a lifestyle company is that it limits your exit opportunity, right? Because the normal exit opportunity will be that you raise the, for the phase one and two, and then you partner up and sell to mm -hmm. Big Farm. Mm -hmm. And maybe these startups are asset-specific asset and shouldn't build a real startup because actually they, they, they deliver an asset they should be sold to Pharma. Mm -hmm. The problem is that if you go public, it's much harder for a company to be acquired, much harder. And most... So you can say if a big farmer is looking at your private company and you have phase P, they is basically negotiating with you and three VCs 
um, what should be the price? Okay, we take this, you get an earnout and bonus and milestones or whatever, that's fine. But do a takeover of a public company, it's really, really hard. And, and that's not something you do for a deal for 100, 200, 300 million euro, whatever. So I think I'm not sure how many of early stage life science companies that are really suited for private markets or for, for going public because it's only if you can see you can actually build a viable biotech company out of that. Mm-hmm. And of course, all founders have that dream. But I think to be realistic, many of these assets are better suited for continuous development within pharma. Um, so I, I fully understand why some biotech companies are considering that. And of course, it's also something we consider. Um, uh, but it's really country specific. Uh, we, we would have to do it in, in Sweden mm-hmm. where there is a larger appetite for this kind. And I think at least even in, I think we have two or three Danish immune oncology projects mm-hmm. that are currently listed on the Swedish stock exchange. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders Drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. I see it the same way. I mean, when I I heard once the term one trick pony. So when I see a company with with one asset that has not proven something in clinics, I would also stay away from the stock market and just leave it private uh, because this is then the typical company that is just bought by big pharma and uh, the team gets an exit, stays on board as a consultant, and that's the end of the story. When I look for companies that really have platform potential and uh, a massive pipeline, um, this would, in my opinion, be when we look at the therapeutic space, this would be the perfect uh company for for raising bigger money so it's not being acquired by a pharma company anymore it's more uh licensing single projects and fueling the pipeline um but as a european i would really like to consider ipos on the european market but is there enough money on this market so that we later on when we look at the public space um that really can confidently say okay raising two three four five hundred million dollars or euros on the European market is possible. Do you see do you see that? Yes, I, I think the money is there if you come to that that point, but there's simply not that many biotechs that are coming to that point. Yeah. So I think that's not the bottleneck. The bottleneck mm-hmm. is it not raising two or three hundred million because at that point in time that is because you have phase two data. Yeah. I think the bottleneck is how do we get the the phase one uh, and the phase two uh, uh, finance because that mm-hmm. will you need a lot of investors who are putting in these 10 and 20. So actually also the sum yeah. will be very large. Uh, and then we come back to the, the 40 VC funds, 100 VC funds, mm-hmm. or how we count it, who can, who can do this. Um, so I think it's like the chicken and the egg. You can say, wh- why are there not that many uh, late state assets in Europe with this massive pipeline? And that's, of course, because you could, of course, blame the number of VCs, but it's a- actually not only that. 
because it's also the step before. And the step before is we have really, really good science at university level. Mm -hmm. And to take that out and build startups don't does not only require uh, financial capital, also human capital. And many of these scientists are not interested in that. Many of those want to write articles about it mm -hmm. uh, and dream about uh, a, science, a, a science and nature article. They don't dream about building a company. And that's actually also one of the reasons why I ended up in Inputair, the immune oncology company, which I'm, I'm part of right now. That is because one of my first questions to Peter was saying, if we can raise the seed money, which we then did from the Nordisk Foundation, would you quit your university professor's um, position and become CEO? And that's a massive, I don't think we can, we as non-academics cannot fully understand how big a step that is. I'm not saying you're burning your bridges, but you're going out of everything you've done the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And that, that he did. And without a person like him to go out and actually build it, you cannot just take the patent, right? So when we talk about the, the ecosystem in, in, in Europe, we, we cannot only focus about what happens about funding phase mm -hmm. one and the seed funding, so, so seed and, and series A. We also need to, uh, to focusing on how we can get more academics to build startups. Mm -hmm. And that's actually why the, 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 the Novo Nordisk Foundation, uh, which funded us, actually created such an initiative called the Bioinnovation Institute, so the Novo BII. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, they're coming with seed funding to, to companies like Importair with Peter and I, but they're also doing a massive task of actually giving smaller amounts of money to these researchers to go out and prove themselves. Um, and I think that is even more needed, right? Because that is that is the, the food chain for building successful startups. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that that's a very important point that you are making. This, which is very often forgotten, uh, this switch in mindset. Working on the university level is something completely different than working in a company. So I would I would phrase it in that way that. Uh, doing research on a university is, in my opinion, or research organization, it's more on the creative side of life. Um, researchers can do a lot of projects. They can uh, focus on uh, gaining expertise and experience. And the endpoints are publications mostly, and lately also patents. But once they switch into a company, it's a development story. So yeah. a company focuses mostly on one goal. Uh, it's important to focus the resources on this goal, not looking left or right. Publications are nice to have, not so important. And it comes more on the patent side and development side. What was your experience with your company? How the scientists managed that switch? What I'm actually extremely impressed about him because yeah. I, I tried to warn him a little bit. Um, and the good thing was he already had done other projects Mm -hmm. that was sort of semi-spinned out in real company. So it was not the first time he got seed funding, whatever, but he still continued as a scientist. And this, he basically said, this time I want to do it real. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm so impressed because what is he spending his time on now? Uh, managing people, uh, getting funding, uh, stuff like that. Um, and and, uh, and it all, I think it comes from his burning desire to actually do it. Right? And he wants to set his footprint. And it's not about money. It's about not only showing in animals that, that this, this technology can cure cancer, but that it actually can do it in humans, right? Because that, that's where you make a difference, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, but he managed extremely well. It's been because it's really, a, I actually say it's really, really hard to be a full-time academic because they also have to fight for resources, but it's still, it's another system. Um, mm -hmm. You don't have to be that extrovert in, 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 in standing in a presentation for VCs and stuff like that. Uh, I think Peter has done it extremely well. Um, and it's something this journey we've been on, we've now been on this journey for, I think I met him two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been amazing. And, and I also like being with so, you know, now spend a number of years mainly with software and also really, really um, uh, skilled professors in software encryption mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But, you know, it's just also fun for me to, to meet now professors within uh, immune oncology and learn so much about that. So uh, I, I enjoy it. And I think we need more people like Peter that is taking that jump out. Of course, they shouldn't do it just, you know, every time they have a good idea. But when you come to a point where you think, hey, mm -hmm. we can't really do much more in the academic space because we need to raise significant amount of funding. And for that, we need also persons to, to, to do the real life job. You know, we need persons like him that is quitting their academic career. Uh, and, and I think we also need more people who support scientists and how, who are not scared of science. I've, I also agree it's the, the best thing in the world to work with the smartest people to solve the world's biggest problems, because this is really something nice, nice that we have in our industry that you mentioned at the beginning. I mean, just imagine you can cure cancer. So you work with the right people who move projects forward, bring it to the patient and really change lives to the better. Um, I'm pretty sure you presented yourself or I presented yourself as a business angel and investor. Um, so it might be that some people from the life science community, especially young entrepreneurs, might reach out to you and uh, ask you for advice and uh, if you want to come on board as an investor. Um, let me ask you one question. When they reach out to you, uh, what is important to you to see in the pitch deck? What should they present to you? I would say it more broadly than the pitch deck because what is an early stage investment really about? I think that's about trust, right? Mm -hmm. So you should you should go one step back and say, you know, when I contact this person, that could be me or it could be whatever VC or something like that, how can I gain that trust? Of course, if you know the person already, you know, that's mm -hmm. a great way because then you know, hey, Nikolai, remember we worked together eight years ago and I have this project. Okay, then I trust the person but it can also be helped indirectly. And that's why VCs and also angels really like these introductions because there you have another person saying, hey, um, uh, this person really has an inter interesting project. So for instance, the reason why I ended up in Inputair was because one of my co-investors who is in the biotech industry, he actually had been asked by Peter's team to join the board and then when this guy last saw the product, he said, it's really interesting, but I don't have time for that because he's running his own full-time job. Uh, you should talk to Nicola. So that kind of introduction is really helpful. Of course, it can also be counterproductive because the best scientists in the world might not have a direct connection to you. Um, so what can you do? You can build trust in other ways and, and that trust can be, what, what have you doing now? So if, if, if two persons come and say to Neula, Neula, we can cure cancer. And one of them is a professor at University X. And the other one is just, um, I don't know, a random guy or girl have done doing something on, on the kitchen shelf. Hmm, mm -hmm. I don't really believe that person. 
if you are a person that don't have these credentials, like being a professor within this space, now we talk about life science, of course, mm -hmm. you need to team up with people that have that because an investor most likely cannot judge that. I, I, I don't have the background. I cannot judge Peter's science. But when the person who introduced me to that was basically also another board member is also a founder of a listed Danish biotech company, that gives you that trust. Mm -hmm. So pitch deck is not really a much about this hockey stick out there because we all know that it's fake. It's about who do you are and why should I trust you? Mm -hmm. That is about what have you done in the past, who have vouched, who are vouching for you, both as investors or co-vendors, and also who have you built on your team, right? Because that's basically your first investors, you can say, that are your co-founders. Mm -hmm. So ideally you say, hey, I'm this science geek, which is meant extremely positive, by the way, uh, and I have teamed up maybe with another science geek Okay, maybe you'll team up with someone else also. That could be a, a, a person with a more commercial background in the industry. I think something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you need to build your personal trust. I think that is it. So don't get too caught in, well, this slide is ugly or whatever. I can I can promise you that the slide <laughs> deck from Importer was extremely ugly and I didn't understand any single thing about that. Mm -hmm. But I... But the only thing I understand is Peter seemed to be an interesting person and persons who were able to judge his science said he was onto something. Mm -hmm. I think that's a starting point. And then you have to build trust directly by meeting the person, et cetera, et cetera. No, that's absolutely important. The two things that I got out from what you said is build a team and build trust, which means build relationships with investors. It's, it's not a transactional system like buying a car. So that they just go to the car dealer, buy the car, and that's it. It's a, a long-term relationship that they hear very often. It resembles very often in the talks I have. Um, I read that 75% of startups fail. Do you think building trust with investors and relationships is enough? Or are there other pitfalls that you experienced uh, lead to failure of the 75%? What should startups do to become one of the 25% that succeed? I think it's very different which industry you're in. Mm -hmm. I think if you're talking about industry where you mainly have market risk, then it's about de-risking that. And the only way to do it is to get customers on board. Mm -hmm. Customers, if it's B2B, if it's B2C, most likely users because none of us are paying for the apps. So, mm -hmm. so the one thing you can do there is as quickly, as cheap as possible to validate that someone is really building, want to buy it, right? So that is the lean startup movement, all that. That is for the low tech thing. That is, I think, that's one one thing. That is, or they say two things: build a team with different skills, so that's technical and business skills, and go out and validate the need. For for life science, at least therapeutics, it's not really about validating the need with end consumers. You can say maybe you should validate the potential need with partners like pharma companies or whatever. Mm -hmm. Of course, not from day one, but there it's. You, you have to realize that the majority of the early funding most likely is coming from the public sources, right? Because they have all these uh, externalities, so it makes sense for them. So you have to look at yourself as private investors and think, do I think this is fundable from a public point of view? Would the public, not only would I trust Peter, but would the public trust Peter? And that is about the team you're building. And if you're doing that, then try to build a team not only with 
other scientists like yourself, but also with um, key opinion leaders that the public can trust. So, for instance, when I met Peter, he said, by the way, Nikolai, do you know NCI, National Cancer Institute in the U.S.? Well, most low. Uh, Jay Pesovsky, who is basically the head of the, cancine, uh, of the vaccine department there, he's my advisor. He's a public employee. We're not allowed to pay him. Okay, can you see how much trust that gave? That mm -hmm. a guy like him, who is really well-known in this space, he wants to be advisor without being paid. Right. So I think if I was in therapeutics area, it's about building that trust mm -hmm. on the science side. So you can say software, validate need, build team, therapeutics. Of course, you should generate data, but you also need to generate a team that that you can trust. Nikolai, I could speak endlessly with you. It's very interesting to learn from your experience. Uh, I really love to talk, but I also know that you have a full schedule ahead of you. You have a lot of work on the table. Um, many thanks for joining uh, this podcast recording, and it would be great to stay in touch. Thank you. Have a nice day. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.